morning. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, would you find Genesis chapter 3? Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving week. And even as I say those words, I, I could presume that probably if you're like most people, you did have times of gladness and joy over Thanksgiving, expressing thanks to God for his blessings over you and your family. But mixed in with that time of Thanksgiving and some hope, there's probably a sense of maybe some sorrow, maybe some grief as you thought about things that used to be but maybe aren't in your life these days. Maybe some memories came around that you just can't release in some, some way and during the holidays they, they roll back around and you recall those memories. It's interesting how the holidays have this way of bringing back to mind the things that we, we want to be and yet they just aren't exactly the way that we like them to be. Uh, if that's true of you, um, let me just encourage you in some sense that that's the way life is on this earth. It's a mixture of hope and also sorrow or grief. I know that's not much of an encouragement. The encouragement comes that for us who are believers, who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we recognize a true hope that does not disappoint us, one that overshadows the sorrow and grief in the world around us rather than the other way around where the sorrow overshadows the hope. And Christmas is a time of hope. We are embarking upon this season. I'm glad that at church we still wait at least until after Thanksgiving to talk about Christmas. Um, but we are jumping right into it. In this holiday season of Christmas, we are going to be thinking about several promises from Scripture Promises that do indeed give us hope. The first one I want to point your direction, your attention to this morning is Genesis 3 verse 15. Here's maybe the first grand promise in scripture. It is one of the promises that 2 Peter 1.4 calls God's precious and very great promises. God's promises are indeed just that, precious and very great to us. It is God's promises that give us our hope. They give us our confidence. They give us a means for endurance in the faith. It is on those promises which we stand as believers. So if you find that your faith may be waning or weak this holiday season, let me encourage you to think on the promises of God. First of all, the one we'll speak of today and then the many, many others in Scripture. Cling to them, think on them, and recognize your faith strengthened. In his book of Bible Promises, George Mueller points out that there are as many as 30,000 promises in the Bible. No, I did not fact check him. If he's anywhere near close to the truth, that's a lot of promises. And if I could summarize very quickly his advice when thinking about God's promises, I think these will be helpful for us. He tells us to hear in God's promises comfort for our souls. We are indeed a people of promise and these promises that God gives us are the place where our hope lies. And so when we hear these promises, hear this comfort for our very souls. Number two, be confident in the promises because of God's faithful character. God is not a God who lies or changes his mind. He does precisely what he says he will do. So when you hear a promise of God, believe it. And third, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Bible tells us that it is in Christ in whom all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so as we think on these promises from God, they are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are sure because of God's character and they bring us comfort to our souls. Well, here in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, you're probably at least a bit familiar with this portion of scripture. And so many of the things that I'll say this morning may be just kind of a review for you. But don't tune them out. Listen closely. Meditate on these truths. And let them become to you an encouragement to your soul. As we hear this verse from Genesis chapter 3, we will listen to God's strong judgment against the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And yet, as we listen to this most terrible curse, this curse becomes to us a most welcome promise of redemption from the Lord himself. So recall with me what has happened already in these first few chapters of Genesis. You remember in Genesis 1 and 2 what happens, but God creates the heavens and the earth. And the Bible tells us that God reflects on that creation and he calls it good. And at the climax of his creative work, at the very end, God creates man and woman. And then what does God say about this creation? He calls it very good. And then we turn over to chapter 3. And no sooner has this pronouncement of very good been spoken, but things turn out to be very bad. The serpent that we know is Satan in the form of a, a physical serpent, a snake. He has come into the Garden of Eden to tempt the woman to turn away from God. This is none other than the devil. The Bible calls him the deceiver of the whole world. He's the father of all lies. And in his work to deceive Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he is indeed successful. And in this chapter, chapter 3, we read the details of not only the beginning of sin coming into the world, but truly the beginning of everything evil in the entire world. That's right, every bit of evil that you and I encounter in this world finds its source right here in Genesis chapter 3. Every bit of disobedience, every bit of shame, every bit of suffering, every denial of truth, every bit of abuse and affliction and adultery and abandonment, every terminal disease, every allergy, every premeditated crime, every tragic accident, every hateful thought, every dirty look, every broken relationship, every ache and pain and loneliness and despair and tear and cry, all of that, everything that is wrong in the world today, every conflict that we encounter as people on this earth has begun right here in Genesis chapter 3. Church, do you suffer? Do you despair? Do you fail? Do you sin? No, the answer to those questions is yes. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. As we look for a source for all of those problems in our lives, find the source right here in Genesis chapter 3. It goes back to this primary enemy of God. This is the devil himself who has caused all these things. Now don't hear me transferring all the guilt only onto the serpent. Adam and Eve were certainly culpable for their, their sin. They, they chose to sin. But the devil is the, the sly one in the story. He never forced Eve to do anything, but through very cunning speech, he convinced Eve 
and then Adam by their own free choice to turn away from God. The devil is the one who, who persuaded the first people to reject the God who created them. And when they did so, they plunged all of humanity, every single person that's ever lived, you and me, into the same bleak fate which they would face due to their sin. And now the Bible says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, this evil one who is the devil. Friends, without some outside power injecting into this situation, every one of us is destined for this everlasting misery that's due to sin. And the question that every single person on the whole planet faces is what in the world can any of us do about it? Can we do anything about this misery that sin has brought upon us? In a stark contrast to both the sin of Genesis 3 and the curse that God gives to the serpent, we read this verse 15 like a bright star of hope in the black sky of judgment. Humanity may have fallen from God, but God is not defeated, and neither is his work with mankind canceled. The gospel is not an explanation of what can man do to help himself, but it is a statement of what God has done and is doing to fix the problem that mankind fell into. This verse 15 is nothing less than the first statement of the gospel. It is the first glimmer of hope immediately coming after man's fall into sin. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15 this morning. Verse 15 is on the screen, but if you have your Bible, it's helpful to go back to verse 14 and get the whole expression of what God has told to the serpent. So look in Genesis chapter 3. In verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Even as we hear these words, I am reminded that it's the promises in the midst of judgment which seem the most solemn. What I mean is this, if you're a parent, you, you understand this truth. Even in the midst of disciplining your children, you may speak very strong consequences to your children. But a merciful and gracious parent will mix those strong consequences with words of comfort and grace right alongside the correction. And this is how we can look upon the words of God, even to the serpent. Now he is speaking, surely, strong words of judgment to the serpent. But in this, we find hope for God's people. Church, cling to this hope that in the midst of all the evil that we face in the world, God is still a gracious God. And his promise still shines brightly in the midst of all the judgment that is due upon sin. If you trust in the name of the Lord, then you trust a gracious and merciful God. And though he condemns sin and will judge every form of evil, he also shows mercy to his children. These are basic gospel truths that we speak of this morning. But these are critical truths that all of us who name the name of Christ stand on as a sure foundation for our faith. So even if these things sound familiar to you this morning, think on them, meditate on them, hold them dear. Because this is the basis for who we are as God's people. 
church, what we're going to experience in the next several weeks as we look around in the world around us is a whole lot of worldly solutions to all of those problems I mentioned earlier, right? Christmas has become, though it is the celebration of the arrival of our Christ, of our Messiah, of our Savior, Christmas has been diluted with a whole bunch of worldliness so that it's become virtually empty as any kind of holy day. What is it about decorations or food or family time or road trips or eggnog or Christmas trees or gift giving that brings any hope to the people around us? Now, don't get me wrong. I participate in almost all of those things. And it's okay if you do too. But none of those things are going to bring any lasting hope to the world around us. And if Christmas is wrapped up only in those empty things, it will bring no hope to you. But if we will rehearse these truths that lie behind the holiday of Christmas, that our Savior has come, that Christ is the answer to God's promise of salvation, even as far back as Genesis chapter 3, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, then we can look beyond the affliction of this world and find hope to persevere through the difficulties of life because all of us encounter difficulties in life. But first I want to show you the promise. In verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis, here is the first utterance of good news in the Bible. This is like the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel is, first of all, the promise of a conflict. Now, that may sound strange to you. The gospel is the promise of a conflict. Honestly, it's like a change of one conflict to another. See, the serpent had persuaded Eve to be in conflict with God, right? The devil tricked the first woman into believing that God was really against her, as if God didn't have what was best in mind for the first people, as if God was holding her back, there was really a better plan that if she would just turn aside from God and take her own way, that, that things would be better for her. And Satan, as the original rebel, would set out to make Eve and all of people who would come after her enemies of God. But here in verse 15, we see a complete reversal of that conflict. And God tells the serpent that on the contrary, he would make the woman and her offspring actually enemies of Satan. I will put enmity between you and them, God said. So no longer is there this hatred between uh, people and God, but God says I will do a work and I will change that situation to make this hatefulness, this enmity, this, this uh, hostility between the woman and her seed and, and, and Satan and his seed. He will change people so that they might see the devil for who he truly is, that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. That they would see clearly that Satan is the God of this world and not the God of heaven. As the New Testament says, he's the ruler of the domain of darkness. He may masquerade as an angel of light, but he is nothing but the wrapped up in darkness. The gospel opens the eyes of sinners who are held in bondage under the control of Satan. It opens the eyes of people who are living in fear of death so that we might see the truth and, and live in liberty, no longer bound by sin or bound by Satan, but, but living in opposition to Satan's tactics. We see the lies that Satan parades around and we work against them. That is what God has done in the hearts of his people through the gospel. The gospel also is the promise of victory. 
promise of victory. At the end of verse 15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Bible is an account of God overcoming the enslaving power of the devil. The devil worked out this slavery over Adam and Eve. They, when they fell into sin, they were immediately enslaved to this sin, turning away from God and, and living according to the power of, of Satan himself. But God is promising that this enslavement will not continue. The wound will be against the heel of the seed of the woman, but it will be against the head of the serpent. That will be a mortal wound, a, a destructive wound. Satan will no longer have a grip on God's people. The New Testament tells us that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And he does this work through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the one who, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. In 1 Thessalonians, it's Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This wrath that was initially meant for the devil and his emissaries. Anyone who faces God's wrath simply faces the punishment that God planned for the devil. When the Apostle Paul preached the gospel, he said it was so that people might turn from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God to receive forgiveness of sins and find a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. As we look at this victory over the devil and his seed, God is promising in the gospel that, that God's people will be rescued from the, the domain, from the kingdom, from the darkness, from the, the world of Satan, and even from the fate of Satan. In one sense, we can look at the people all around the world and see two different kinds of people. One group that is a a people who have turned to the Lord and been welcomed into God's family. And the other kind of people are those who, who are alienated from God and remain in the grips of the devil. One type of person is under the power of God, the other is under the power of Satan. And the gospel is a promise of victory over that power, victory over the power of Satan. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this message that God will conquer, will defeat the devil, and he'll do all that through the death and resurrection and the second coming of the Son of God. Well, the gospel is also a promise of a seed. If you have the ESV or another translation like it, you might have the word offspring in verse 15, but offspring and seed mean the same thing. These are, these are family words. Children come after a parent. Children are offspring or a seed. And right from the beginning of the Bible, we read this story about a family. In the Old Testament, it seems like this family is primarily Israel. But when we get to the New Testament, the story is made clear that God is readily adopting all kinds of people into his family. It's not just Israel, but all kinds of people. People like you and me. So we read these verses like 2 Corinthians six eighteen, where God says, I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. In 1 Peter 2.10, it says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. We were once sons of disobedience, the Bible says. But now, in Romans 9.26 tells us, they will be called sons of the living God. The gospel takes people who are children of wrath, children of disobedience, children of the devil, and makes them children of God. These aren't natural-born children. We come into God's family 
by receiving the Savior by faith. If we rest in our natural born status, we remain in the family of the devil. But the gospel is the promise that God brings sinners out of the family of Satan and by his grace places us in the family of God. And the descendants of Adam and Eve, even before they were born, were able to recognize that they weren't destined to remain in this place of cursing that they were about to receive because of their sin, but God, by his mercy, was declaring that some would be saved. This is the good news of the gospel. They're not destined to the, to the curse forever. And so the promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is this promise of conflict. It's this promise of victory, the promise of a seed, of a family, of God. And if you turn over one page, you might not even have to turn over to Genesis chapter 4. We see these truths working out immediately. And I want to give you just a fly through of scripture. Don't worry, it's not going to take hours. And I want to show you how some of these truths work out to give you a big picture that God's promise started in Genesis chapter 3 is the point of scripture that works all the way to Revelation Immediately in Genesis chapter 4, you may know this story. Between Cain and Abel, two brothers at odds with one another. Truly, Cain is just at odds with Abel because Abel is right with God and he, he sacrifices and, and worships God in the right way. And what does Cain do but get jealous because God accepts Abel's sacrifice? And you know the story. Cain, in his hostility and anger and jealousy, kills his brother. There indeed is a conflict between the seed of this woman and the seed of the serpent. Conflict continues, and if you go over to Genesis chapter 6, you read about Noah. The famous story of Noah and his family being rescued on the ark. And what are they rescued from but God's judgment in the flood upon the whole world of people who are wrapped up in unrighteousness before God. And we see the seed of the woman in Noah and his family being rescued, being saved from judgment that came in the waters of the flood. And the seed of the serpent was all over the entire earth. And here we recognize that the seed of the serpent isn't necessarily a physical offspring, but it's something internal. It's something in the heart. Because somehow even this seed has lasted through the flood and Noah and his family carried on this seed somehow. We read further on about Abram who God changed his name eventually to Abraham. You might remember that God called Abraham out of a pagan nation, told him to go to a new land. God was going to make Abraham a, a family of his own, a family for God's, of God's people, for his own choosing. God promised Abraham a new land, a new nation, a new family. He would make his name great and he would make his, his family as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky, and that God would bless the people on the whole earth through Abraham's family. We see Abraham being brought out as the seed of the woman in contrast to the seed of the serpent everywhere else on the earth. Abraham eventually became the nation of Israel. Israel was God's chosen nation among all the nations of the earth. He could have chosen anyone, but he, he picked Israel among all the nations of the earth. And here's the seed of the woman again facing much conflict from the world around them. You remember the story about Israel in Egypt, Pharaoh killing the babies so that he could protect his nation from being overrun by Israel. He held them in slavery for hundreds of years. Eventually God rescues the people from slavery. And yet even when they go into the wilderness, 
Israel is plagued by this attacks from the serpent. They can't get away from these physical military attacks from the nations around them and also their inward temptations to idolatry and sin. They're fighting this temptation. There are many dark years in Israel's history, but there are also a few bright spots. You remember David, King David? Before David became king, he had many conflicts with the seed of the serpent, even in a man named Goliath. And interestingly enough, do you remember how David killed Goliath? He slung a stone to what? Hit, David, hit Goliath in the head. And we could say that this seed of the woman crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. We see God's plan working out. Though there are many difficult portions, it seems like the seed of the serpent would overwhelm God's people. God's plan is not canceled. It is not thwarted. God will be victorious and keep his word. Israel became a nation that was wrapped up in much sin, and even as God's people, they were called, they, they were tempted to sin and fell into sin many, many times. They fell into idolatry. It got so bleak that at one point the, the prophet Elijah concluded, I'm the only one left. Everyone else has fallen away, and I'm the only faithful one left. But God reassured him and said, no, there are 7,000 left who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God is keeping this remnant, this seed of the woman going they would not fade away. Even though Israel eventually went into captivity and it would seem like the nation was destroyed and they would be blended into the peoples around them, God sent the prophets to encourage the people and tell them that's not true. There is hope. God will rescue you. There, there will be a remnant to return. And even in the words of the prophets, much of their message was, was expressing how the Savior would come. And so we read Words of hope in Isaiah and Daniel and Hosea and Jonah and Micah and others. Words that give us the details about the coming of the Savior. And indeed the Savior did come. We know the story. And Galatians 4.4 4 reminds us that when the fullness of time had come at just exactly the proper right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is indeed the seed of the woman that Genesis 3.15 is ultimately looking to. Jesus was a special seed of the woman, born of a virgin, having no human father. He was more precisely the seed of the woman than anyone who came before or after him. And when Jesus comes into this world as a man, he is joining in this long-standing conflict with the seed of the serpent. You remember all the conflict in Jesus' life, barely escaping Herod, slaughtering the infants because Herod wanted to kill the Messiah. When Jesus grew up and came to his own people preaching this gospel, what happened? But John 1.11 tells us he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own people had taken on this, this thought, this process, this heart of the seed of the serpent. Even though Jesus' whole ministry was a, a demonstration of triumph over evil, he was healing the sick, he was casting out demons, he was preaching the gospel, proclaiming liberty to the captives, his whole ministry was showing his power over the forces of evil. And even as he preached, the seed of the serpent was welling up in the religious leaders. The Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted to kill him because they were jealous of his power. They accused him of speaking blasphemy, seeking to kill the Son of God. Finally, they recruited Judas. And you remember, the Bible says that Satan entered into Judas. He is the very embodiment of Satan himself in the Gospels. 
Judas, this seed of the serpent, this prime traitor of the Lord, turns against Jesus and turns him into the authorities. Under the Roman rule, they eventually hung Jesus on the cross. And Jesus died. And it might seem if you're reading through the scriptures at this point that the seed of the serpent, the, the power of the serpent has, has overwhelmed God's promise. And I get intrigued to think about Satan either himself doesn't believe God's word, which I don't think that that's true, or Satan is very forgetful. He forgets the things that God has declared, but I, I don't think that that's true either. Or maybe a third option would be that Satan is so self-absorbed that he thinks that he can actually affect some change in the plan, that he can work out some way to thwart God's plan. And I guess that goes to, to show us the immense pride in the character of the devil. But here he, he thinks that he has overcome God's plan in having Christ put to death on the cross. But God is much more powerful than the devil. We would all affirm that truth. And even as the devil has thought he has accomplished his own plan in putting Christ to death on the cross, it is that very work which God has used to accomplish his own plan. Isn't that interesting? Satan thinks he has done the work that he set out to do. But oh, brother... <laughs> God has, in fact, done the work that he set out to do. And it is in the death of Christ, the seed of the woman, whereby we see the destruction of the devil himself. It is an amazing turn of events that never could have been planned by any human mind. Not by mine, anyway. And the New Testament tells us that the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ is, is God having worked to, to disarm the rulers and the authorities and put them in open shame. And that's not the, the rulers and authorities of nations and, and military powers. These are the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm. These are Satan and his demons. They have been put to an open shame, God triumphing over them in the cross. It is through the work of Christ that the ruler of this world has been cast out one of my favorite portions of scripture is Hebrews chapter 2. And in verse 14, we read something that's very clarifying about even the incarnation, Christ coming in the flesh. Verse 14 of Hebrews 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. In other words, God's children live in flesh and blood. And because they do, Christ came in the same form in which we live. He came in the flesh and in the blood. And Christ came in flesh and blood so that he might give his flesh and blood. The reason Jesus was born on the earth was so that he might die. And in that death comes the destruction of the devil. The truth of Christmas is that the Son of God, the Son, the seed of the woman has been born on this earth so that he might give his life to destroy the power of Satan and redeem God's people. And through this death and resurrection of Christ, the serpent has been bruised. Sure, he has bruised the heel of the Son of God. Christ had to die to save sinners. But Christ has bruised the head of the serpent. His power is depleted. It is no longer in complete force his power over death 
is gone. The serpent is mortally wounded. His end is in sight. We've concentrated on that thought for many weeks. Jeremy's preached through the book of Revelation, and I would encourage you to listen to those sermons to get a fuller glimpse of what the end will be like. Patrick reminded us earlier that we know the end of the story. The the final wound to Satan does, in fact, get taken out. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that when Christ returns and he finalizes his work, the devil and his allies will finally be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And finally, this serpent who tempted Eve so many generations ago in the wilderness is cast out to be destroyed in the lake of fire. And the seed of the woman will come to this new heavens and this new earth wherein there is only righteousness And there is no more evil. There is no more temptation. There is no more serpent to ruin things. The Bible tells us that the one who conquers will have this heritage. And God says, I will be his God and he will be my son. But the seed of the serpent, his portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Church, this great enemy of God will not prevail. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent and he he will not have victory. This is the promise of Genesis chapter 3 and it's the, the promise that is worked out through all the pages of scripture. The important question for you today is what seed is in you? Whose offspring are you? God has worked out this gospel of Jesus to rescue sinners from the clutches of Satan's grip. To be saved from the deception that Satan puts on the minds of people. So the question is, have you been rescued? Have you called on the name of the Lord? That's the important question. Satan is great at deceiving people because you might not even recognize that you've been blinded to truth. But if you have not called on the name of the Lord for salvation from your sin, then I must tell you an important truth. You belong to the devil. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us that he has blinded your mind to keep you from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ. He's deceived you into thinking that you are just okay. But you are not. You reside in a frightful place. The Bible says that the gospel is veiled, it's hidden to those who are perishing. If you are not a friend of the gospel, then you are in a place of perishing. And if you remain in that current state, you have only to fear the same outlook that the devil has to fear. So let me call to you, don't delay, turn to Christ, call in the name of the Lord. Recognize that God has promised from the very beginning that there would, he would draw out a seed of the woman, a, a people for his own possession. He, he creates children of God to be drawn out of the people of this world. You don't have to be like the world around you. But if you don't call on the name of the Lord, you'll face the same fate. Friends, if you have questions about the gospel or what any of those things mean, then please feel free to come speak to me or one of the other pastors after church. In fact, just speak to any of the people around you. They can point you in the right direction. We want you to know the gospel and know how to respond to the gospel appropriately. But please don't leave today without being a friend of the gospel and a child of God. If you are a believer, I want to show you one more passage of scripture from 
Romans chapter 16. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 16. Many of those truths I've mentioned so far are big picture things. Sometimes they're hard to get a a glimpse on. What does that mean for my, my immediate life right this moment? It is certainly wonderful to cling to the promises of God, and we should moment by moment, day to day, The promise of Christmas is the promise that God has sent his Savior into the world to to work out this gospel truth that God saves sinners. But the truth of the gospel is not just a big picture thing for you to rest in it only. It is that, but it is more than that. It It is to speak to us, to live a certain kind of way, to trust in the Lord. In Romans chapter 16 We find in verse 20, a verse that sounds very much familiar to the passage we've read in Genesis chapter 3. Look in verse 20, Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, the Apostle Paul tells the church at Rome. He is telling them that that God is going to work out this act of crushing Satan under their very feet. Now the truth, the promise of Genesis chapter 3 is that there will be a particular seed, a special seed, that's Jesus, who will work out this bruising of the head of the serpent. But even, even beyond that, for all of us who are in Christ, we participate in this crushing of the head of the serpent. Look back in verse 17. How does it work out? I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. What is that doctrine? It is gospel truth. There are those who would come into the church and change the message of the gospel, that it wasn't Christ alone, through faith alone, according to the truth of scripture that would save these people. They, they would add something to the gospel or they would take something away from the gospel. This is the nature of false teaching. Paul is saying, watch out for those kinds of people. And in fact, at the end of verse 17, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. This sounds very much like Genesis chapter 3, right? The serpent speaking flattery, smooth talk to the woman who is naive. Who wasn't paying attention to the word of God, wasn't standing on the word of God. He tricked her to turn away from God. This is exactly the work of false teachers who come and they sound very smooth, very appealing, but they twist the truth of the gospel and they cause their hearers to turn away from the gospel. Paul continues in verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Here's a key. Wise in what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This crushing of Satan under the feet of the church at Rome was going to happen as they were wise in what is good and innocent as to what is evil. That doesn't just mean knowing good things and turning away from evil things. He's, He's encouraging them to holiness, to live out the gospel truth. The doctrine that we know isn't just this ethereal knowledge way up here in the clouds. The truth of the gospel is is a practical matter. It changes our hearts to live for righteousness and holiness and peace. And Paul is telling the church at Rome, 
Turn away from the false teaching because it doesn't help you know what's good and right. But if you stand with the gospel, then you will be wise in what is good. Church, this is how we work at participating in this crushing of the head of the serpent. We live according to the gospel. We let the gospel change our moment-by-moment decision. We aim for holiness. We, we become wise in what is good. In every decision that we make, we demonstrate that God has changed us. Not only wise in what is good, but being innocent as to what is evil. Affirming the gospel and believing the truth about what Christ has done is also to turn away from the temptations of Satan. To turn away from the temptations to evil. When the gospel works in the hearts of people, we learn the truth. And the truth has a changing effect upon us so that we live for what is good. We live for holiness and righteousness. And we turn away from evil. And Paul is telling us that if we, if we stand on the gospel, if we avoid false teaching, if we live towards holiness, if we shun the evil and reject it, and refuse to live that sort of a life, then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Every day, church, you and I have this ability to participate in God's work. Oh, we don't crush the head of Satan. God does that, but he will do it through your living a holy Christ-like life. That's just the first promise that we will look at this Christmas season that God has promised, made sure that even though sin has been brought into the world by the temptation of Satan, God has a better plan that he will for sure enact that through his son, the final ultimate seed of the woman, he would crush the serpent. There are still days ahead where we're waiting for that to be finally sure. But church, it will happen. Know it is sure. It was begun at the crucifixion, and it gets closer and closer every day. Till then, we can win these smaller battles in our own lives. We know the victory of God is sure. And this is the plan of God, to rescue people who are perishing, rescue people who are in the grip of Satan, to raise up a people redeemed by the blood of Christ, conquer all those who oppose God in his work. God will overcome evil on a large scale, but he also overcomes evil in our individual hearts. This is the message of victory, that Christ has overcome the world. He's overcome the serpent. And as you wade through this mixture of hopefulness and yet also sorrow and grief that is sometimes present in this holiday season, Be reminded of the gospel. It's gospel truth that will overcome our encounters with evil. Whether it's in our life or in the family around us or the friends around us. Think on the gospel. Speak gospel truth. And let that be where your true hope is found to overcome that evil that Satan would have you believe. At the heart of Christmas is Christ, and at the heart of all these promises we think on is Christ himself. Let's pray together. Father, we 
thank you for your sure promises. Lord, we are tempted to forget them. Sometimes tempted to think that they're not going to happen. Sometimes tempted to disbelieve you and think that you haven't said what you've said or that you won't work out what you've promised to do. Lord, remind us this Christmas season that we have a sure hope in Christ the Lord, this seed of the woman who will come. and He's already enacted our salvation, finalized the work of redemption. But Lord, we wait for your promise to be completely fulfilled and when the power uh, of sin, not only the power of sin is is removed, but the presence of sin is removed in us and the, the presence of evil and temptation and Satan is removed from the world. Lord, we long for, we wait for, we hope for your return that we might rejoice in your presence apart from any evil, any wickedness, any despair. Father, thank you for these promises. As you drill them into our minds, let us live by them day by day for your honor, for your glory. Amen. Let's go and stand together. To see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten men, nailed to a cross.
took me 35 minutes to explain that song helps us understand in just a few minutes I was never a songwriter though well we come again to the Lord's table to celebrate the work of Christ on our behalf that Christ took this weight of sin in his own body he carried upon himself that which we deserve, the blame, the shame, the wrath of God. And it's through the death of Christ that we now recognize life. Not only has the serpent been crushed, but death is crushed. And so life is ours. And all the worry and the fear that goes along with that death, 
Christ is overturned and cast out. So we celebrate our Lord Jesus Christ, the power that his cross is enacted for us. So as we consider these elements this morning, think about them in light of what we've heard from Scripture. That Christ has won the victory over sin and death and the devil. And he did so by, through the bruising of his own heel, but as he gave up his life for ours, he has given his, both his body and his blood so that we might be free and forgiven of our sin. We call this the Lord's Supper. Though it's not enough to fill our physical stomachs, it is certainly plenty to satisfy our spiritual souls. This is why we come to the Lord's table, to be refreshed in our spirit, to recognize the provision of Christ for the hunger inside us. So we don't come to quench bodily hunger, but we know that Christ has satisfied our souls, our spirits. This is a, a refreshment, church, to everyone who, who has turned to Christ in faith, to everyone who has demonstrated that faith through baptism, and to everyone who, who now lives moment by moment by faith in the Son of God. And if those words describe you, then we invite you, please fellowship with us around the table of the Lord through the cup and the bread as we celebrate Christ together. So take a few moments and examine your own hearts. Make sure that you are right with the Lord as you prepare to celebrate through the bread and the cup. And as you are prepared, then make your way to the tables to take the elements for yourself. And after you go back to your seat, we'll pray and partake together. So you can be seated if you need. Take some time with the Lord. And as you are ready, get the elements and we'll partake together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this visible 
reminder, this, this reminder that we can taste even in our mouths that, that you have answered the promise that you made so many ages ago, that you have given your son in our place. And though he was bruised in his heel by giving his body and his blood for us, he has also bruised the head of the serpent. So we have confidence, we have hope, we have life. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, for our sakes, for us who in no way deserves this gift. We thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Harvest Point, as you go out this week, may you recognize God crushing the head of the serpent under your feet as you live in light of the gospel. Go in peace.